Okay, there we go. Good morning. It's already been an edifying morning, I think, for many of us here, especially those of us who are here for the singing, for a chance to come together, to join our voices and our hearts together in praise and praise and worship. Um, I think it's been a good morning for us so far. Um, for many of us, I've seen many visitors in our audience, or not rather our audience, but rather in our midst today. Um, let me try that again. I see many audience in our midst today. <laughs> I see many visitors in our midst today, and I want to welcome you all specially. Uh, for many of you, you may not realize um, I'm not the regular speaker. Well, you probably didn't realize that now, but um, at the end of uh, our months, we take the last Sunday of the month to speak a little bit about our theme for the year. So our theme um, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, really in verse 11, where it reads, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Um, so this is this idea that we want to build our lives on Christ so that we can be in God's field, building, building a dwelling place for God. Now, I think many of the theme sermons that we've had so far this year have kind of explored this concept of what does it look like? What does it mean for us to be being built? And what does it mean for us to be building? Um, but what I kind of want to focus on is what is it that we are actually building? Um, we started off this, um, this uh, kind of theme year with a Bible study in the book of Acts. And, or not Acts, brother Luke, and we're currently in the book of Acts in our normal study. And um, kind of one of the reasons why we picked this, these two um, books to study to start off our year, was because we wanted to learn who really was Jesus. What did it look like for him to be going about doing his work? As many of you um, who are regular here know, one of my favorite descriptions about Jesus in his life and his work is, he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And, and right now in the book of Acts, it's kind of interesting. We're learning more and more about what the apostles did to go about doing good and healing all who are oppressed of the devil. And I think that's important um, because we can't exactly perfectly imitate what Jesus Christ did, right? Um, none of us in this room have the capacity to die for sin. None of us in this room have the capacity to know what to say, when to say it. None of us have the capacity to see others and read their hearts and, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but we find ourselves, I think, in many ways, looking more and more like, um, um, well, of course, our goal is to look like Jesus. But I think in many ways, um, we have to look towards others for, um, I guess, inspiration for how we actually are supposed to do that. So, um the best example I think we really have of that is the apostles. Um, so that's kind of why I think this book of Acts and the study of Acts has been so important for us because really Jesus Christ, he was the foundation. He says it several places. I am the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He is the rock on which the church is built. So the study of Acts I think has been very important because really, I think it's the apostles are almost like that first layer of stones that got to get put on top of the foundation. So in many ways, what we see when we study, when we learn about what the apostles are doing, 
we're seeing how are we going to be added to this building. Um, I mean, and we, I think we're familiar with that, you know, in Acts chapter 2 and, uh, you know, verse 38, you know, the, when everyone around says, what do we need to be, do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, you know, for the, for the forgiveness of sins, and um, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does it say happened when they did that? It says they were added to the church. So I think what we're really starting to see more and more, especially as we're studying the book of Acts, what really was it that the apostles were building? What really was it that the apostles were doing? Well, they were going about doing good, and they were teaching, and they were building the church. And they didn't just build one church. They didn't just build the church in Jerusalem. They were going about all around the world. You know, we're currently in these missionary um, missionary. Um, uh, missionary journeys of Paul, and what was Paul doing? He was going around to all these various various cities. He was teaching, and he was building churches in those various cities. And um, I think that this particular image that we see of the apostles and this this of Paul of Peter and um, even you know people like Philip and Stephen is. Um, especially I think Peter and Paul as being two very prime examples of this, we know what their lives looked like before they were building the church, right? So what was Peter like? He was quick-tempered. He didn't like, you know, people who weren't the same ethnicity as him. He was kind of dumb. You'd say just say stupid stuff, right? And I think all of us at some level or another, we can relate to that. All of us have said something, you know, just kind of dumb in our lives. Um, we open our mouths before we think, and we just start speaking, and um, you know that's that's human. But what happens to Peter after he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit? What happens to him when he's going about and teaching? He now all of a sudden has this ability to know the right thing to say, right? He has this through the gift of the Holy Spirit, of course. But now he's not opening up his mouth and speaking foolishly. He's opening up his mouth and speaking truth. We find he's no longer, um, you know, we don't, I don't, you know, this Peter that we read about in the book of Acts, he doesn't come across as being um, angry and, you know, selfish, but rather he comes across as being patient. And in fact, he comes across as even putting others' needs before his own. And I think we see um, probably the most dramatic example of this is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, right? He went about, he was a murderer, he was a killer, he was violent, and, um, we find the violence has no place in the kingdom of God. Violence has no place in the church. So after Saul's conversion, after Saul became Paul, he suddenly becomes one who is no longer violent. He's no longer going around killing. He's no longer going around hunting people down so they can put them in jail. Um, he goes from being, you know, Jews first and only Jews to the, the gospel is for everyone. The kingdom of God is for everyone. And I think, um, you know, this is something that we can relate to. Uh, We can relate to the story of transformation. We can relate to the story of being changed by the gospel. We can relate to the story of being forgiven of our sins, of putting those things in our past, and living a new life with God. And this kind of idea of us looking up to the apostles is one that we're familiar with in Scripture. Now, in Exodus chapter 7, I think there's an interesting um, example of this. 
Um, many of us are familiar with the story of the burning bush, but I think sometimes we kind of gloss over a phrase in verse 1 when God is speaking to Moses. Um, God says to Moses, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So this, and that's just interesting to me because we see there's a Pharaoh who's kind of this far-off structure, and you see God, who's on the opposite end of Pharaoh, but there's kind of this intermediary in the middle to kind of bridge this gap between himself, you know, the almighty, righteous, you know, good God, and Pharaoh, a pagan, proud, you know, murderous, you know, individual. So God sends Moses, and even interestingly enough, Moses isn't even the intermediary between God and Pharaoh. Moses has Aaron, who is the intermediary between himself and Pharaoh. And it's fun, too, when you're kind of going through and you're looking at these stories of the, you know, of the ten plagues, I think many times in our heads, we picture Moses is the one that's going out and striking the Red Sea with his rod and turning it into blood. But it's actually Aaron who goes out there and turns the Red Sea into blood. And so... The reason why God set up that structure was so that Pharaoh would see a human being in front of him, but to Pharaoh, he, this human being that was in front of him was like Jehovah, was like God before him. And, um, and I think this is interesting when we start to kind of take that and we kind of shift it over into a New Testament perspective. So, you know, God was all the way over here. He's pure and righteous and holy. And you had Pharaoh over here who was a pagan and who was evil and was a murderer and stuff like that. Well, guess what? We find ourselves, we're over here on Pharaoh's side and God is some way far, far away. And even, I think to a certain extent, Jesus is kind of far away from us when we first come to meet him. Um, he can be difficult to relate to. I think uh, there's nobody in this room who before you came to know Christ uh, would have ever Done, gone to the extremes to put others in front of yourself like Jesus did. None of us would have ever even, um, none of us ever knew the right thing to say and when to say it. None of us ever had a heart of giving, of compassion, of suffering like Jesus had. None of us ever had that. But yet there's kind of this intermediary almost, like this kind of middle ground between us and Jesus. And I think in many ways that's the apostles. The apostles, they were like us at one point, but they came over. They became more than human they became Christians. They became the people of God. And because of that, we sort of have these models, these physical models to look up to to help us. And this is kind of a, you know, this is probably a strange perspective that many of you haven't heard before. I'm willing to recognize that. Um, but the more and more I read the book of Acts, the more and more I'm convinced of it. Because who is it that goes about doing the work of the church? Well, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not Jesus, it's the apostles. So when Jesus appeared to, to Saul on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? Did Jesus say, rise up, be baptized, you know, your sins are forgiven you? No. He said, go to Ananias, and Ananias will tell you what to do. And guess what? It was Ananias, a human like us, Ananias who was formerly sinful, who was formerly evil, who was formerly this, that, or the other, and had became a Christian who had been transformed from merely human to being a Christian. And it was that man, that human, who was the man who told Saul about Jesus. And um, really, I guess the point I'm trying to drive at here 
is the church in its ideal state should be how the world sees Jesus. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jesus, when he was living among us, said, seeing me, they don't see me. Hearing me, they don't hear me. So even when Jesus was alive, when we could like look at him with our eyes, we probably didn't see him. We probably, you know, even if we heard the words he was saying, we didn't really hear him. We didn't really get him. And Jesus, he's now gone away. Well, does he expect us to no longer, I mean, we read his words, and but yet we can sometimes, I think, in the church, we say we've seen Jesus, we've heard Jesus, we've met Jesus. Now, did we physically hear Jesus? Do we physically see Jesus? Do we physically? No, we spiritually heard Jesus. We spiritually saw Jesus. We spiritually met Jesus. And um, really, that's what Jesus wanted in the first place. While he was here on the earth physically, he wanted people to see him and hear him and feel him and meet him spiritually first. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by this idea that the church suddenly becomes how the world out there meets Jesus. And um, I think if you ask somebody, um, you know, is Jesus dead or alive? I think if anyone, you know, if anyone's in this room and thinks that everyone else in this room thinks that Jesus is dead, that person is wrong. Everyone in this room who is a Christian believes that Jesus on some level or another is alive, right? We believe, and then the next question that you can ask somebody is, do you believe that Jesus is alive on the earth? Or do you believe that Jesus is alive in heaven? Well, obviously, we all think that Jesus is alive in heaven. You can't be dead in heaven. Everyone in heaven is alive. Um, but this question is, is Jesus alive on the earth? Yes, Jesus is alive, and he's alive. He's working, he's living, he's moving, he's breathing on this earth through his church. And um, I think... Sometimes we're shy to say that. We're shy to believe that. We're shy to, you know, kind of share this. And I, why is that? I think probably the reason is because we're afraid because the church is imperfect. There's problems in the church. No church is without its own problems. You know, sometimes we have, I mean, actually, let's be real. Just read the book of First uh, Corinthians that our theme verse comes from. It's, ama- it's truly one of the most amazing things about the book of Corinthians is that Paul still calls these people Christians. He still calls them brothers. He still calls them a church because you read about how terrible and how many problems they had. I don't think any Christian in this room um, has ever been tempted to do something like drag their brother to a court of law over, you know, some kind of parking ticket. You know, if, I think if, any, if, I, if somebody ran into my car or accidentally ran into one of the brothers in this room car, I would be shocked. I wouldn't even see it coming if they said we're going to court for this. Um, that's just something that's not even like, uh, you know, in our, in our, you know, framework of thinking, but, you know, people in Corinth didn't see any problems like you wronged me. I'm going to wrong you back. You know, I'm going to take what's mine. And, you know, not to mention all the sexual morality and the, you know, carousing with idols and this, that, and the other that the Corinthians did. So we see an image of, uh, of a church kind of gone awry in this book of Corinthians, but yet Paul still calls them brothers. He still calls them Christians. He still has some kind of fellowship with him. And um, I think this is probably and rightfully should be shocking for us that um, Paul still seems to think that these people have some sort of fellowship and some sort of unity with God. And really, um, I think that there's something still, though, even in an imperfect church, 
there's something else at play in the imperfect church, right? Uh, there's especially if it's a true church, if it's a true church whose goal, whose foundation is is solid, whose foundation is Christ, and whose goal is to be more and more Christ-like every single day. Um, you find this it's this this Holy Spirit working in the church, and the what does the Holy Spirit do in the church? I think there's this love that brothers have for each other. There's this unity that brothers have with each other. And if you read in uh, John chapter 17, there's this high priestly prayer. I think it's interesting. Starting in verse... uh, Where is it? Starting in verse 20. It reads, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus speaking to the Father about the apostles who are in the room. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who receive me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is kind of an interesting concept. So this, the apostles we described, so if Jesus Christ is the foundation and the apostles are this first layer of stonework for this great you know, edifice that is the church, Jesus is obviously praying for the apostles because he wants the apostles to be one with him, the foundation, as he, the foundation, is one with the Father. But he also prays for the layer above the apostles. He prays that they might have unity with the apostles as the apostles have unity in Christ as Christ has unity in the Father. So that's why I think a church can be imperfect but yet a church still is an image of Christ to the world. Because Christ said it's the unity of the church that will be a sign to who? A sign to the world that I, Jesus Christ, am. So really, Jesus Christ here is praying that the world sees himself through the church. And this idea is uh, reiterated, I think, very beautifully in John chapter, in First John chapter one, and in verse, uh, I believe it's seven, where it reads, or rather, it's in verse three, which we, the apostles, have seen and heard. We, the apostles, proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. So, really, where does that unity come from? Well, our unity comes from agreeing with the apostles, from doing what the apostles said. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you know, I was just saying a minute ago that really, in many ways, it's easier for us to relate to the apostles than it is to maybe relate to Jesus sometimes. Um, but yet, there's almost some characters that are even more relatable to us today than maybe the apostles. Um, I think of people like Apollos. You know, Paulus was an apostle. He was just a, he had never, we don't even know if Apollos ever like met Jesus. But Apollos was so changed by Jesus Christ that he went all around the world preaching and teaching and sharing the good news. You know, you find people like, um, you know, Tabitha or, you know, Dorcas. I mean, she's probably one of the most fascinating characters in the book of Acts. Um, you know, she 
probably never met Jesus, but she was so changed by the story of Jesus and by the apostles' teaching that when she died, her work was so important to the church that God brought her back from the dead so that she keep doing her work. And it's almost like, you know, this layer almost on top of the apostles becomes more relatable to us. Because this layer, like on top of the apostles, you know, they, they're like us in this room because they didn't see Jesus, they didn't meet Jesus, they didn't interact with Jesus. But yet, Jesus and the story of Jesus changed them, it transformed them, it made them more and more like him, even though they never met the man. And uh, that's really, uh, I mean, that's, like, that's really the, the whole point of this sermon, is that we have to keep building on that same foundation. We have to keep building up that same structure. Um, and um, what did these people do? These people did the same thing as the apostles did. And the apostles did the same thing as Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed with the devil. The apostles, their message was a little bit different from Jesus's. Jesus's message, prime message, was the kingdom is coming. And the apostles' message was the kingdom has come. So that's maybe the big difference between the apostles' message and, and Jesus's message. Um, but really the apostles' message, we can only assume, became people like Apollos, people like Priscilla and Aquila, people like, you know... Um, people like uh, like Dorcas, these people, their message would have been the same. They have to go about doing good, healing all who are oppressed the devil, because the kingdom of heaven has come. And it's amazing to think that these people, 2,000 years ago, who were neither apostles, who aren't, you know, I mean, even like you think people like Tabitha, she wasn't some great preacher or theologian, but yet their testimony, their word, their good deeds live on today, nearly 2,000 years later. And I guess that really brings us to today. How do we keep doing the work that they were doing 2,000 years ago? Um, I think this is a struggle that um, I think some Christians have, and if they've not had it, they might have it at some point in the future. Um, but, you know, how do, you, how do we, like, how do we do this? Like, what does this actually mean? Because the church, as we meet in this room today, you know, we've only been around for, like, what, maybe 10 years? So it's like, how do we as a church that's less than 10 years old build up on a foundation that's nearly 2,000 years old? I think that's kind of a, a difficult question that we should ask ourselves sometimes. But I think the answer becomes very clear, very plain, uh, once you kind of study the scriptures a little bit. You do the same things that the apostles did. You do the same things that Apollos and and Priscilla and Aquila and Dorcas do the same thing these people did. Because really the fellowship that we have with the Christians in the first century is because we do the same things that they did. Um, I kind of want to read to you. It's interesting. I have a, I have a little uh, you know passage from a, an, this was written very, very long ago. This is uh, kind of very early Christians. These weren't apostles. These were Christians like us. And this is kind of some writing that they had about, you know, what they think, just about things. And um, I just wanted to share it with you. He, he's, he's speaking to this woman, and this woman is a representative, kind of, you know, allegorically of the church. 
So the, uh, the speaker speaks to her and says, Why is the tower built upon the waters, O lady? And she answered, I told you before, and you will inquire care- still carefully. Therefore, inquiring, you will find the truth. Hear then why the tower is built upon the waters. It is because your life has been and will be saved through water. For as the tower was founded on the word of the almighty and glorious name, and it is kept together by the invisible power of God, here now with regard to the stones which are in the building, those, white, those square white stones which fit exactly into each other are the apostles, the bishops, teachers, and deacons who have lived in godly purity and have acted as bishops and teachers and deacons chastely and reverently to the elect of God. Some of them have fallen asleep and some of them still remain alive and have always agreed with each other and have been at peace among themselves and listened to each other. On account of this, they join exactly into the building of the tower. So the reason why I like this, uh, you know, this image, and you probably have figured it out just by the context, he's seeing this vision of a tower that's coming up out of a lake. And he's like, well, this is kind of strange. Why is, how can you build a tower on a body of water like that? And, you know, the lady says, well, isn't it obvious to you? The church is founded on the waters because you have always been saved through water. Well, what was the first action of the church? The first action of the church was when Peter said, be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That act, that was the foundation of water that began this building of the church. So what does that mean for every church throughout the entire world, throughout all of history, no matter if they're 10 years old and they were just established here in the city of Atlanta less than a decade ago, or if these are ancient churches that have been around for hundreds, if not you know, over a thousand years, if there's a church like that somewhere in the world, um, what do these two churches have in common? They're built on the same foundation, the same foundation of water. And it's interesting, um, too, the reason why all these stones fit together, right? So even though there's kind of this, and I think we understand this, there's several little churches, you know, today. There's a church that's meeting in this room right now. There's, you know, churches over in China that, you know, they finished their worship services several hours ago. But yet there's kind of this image that we're in sort of the same building as they are. Well, why do we fit together, us, the church in this room today, and that church in far, in a far away, you know, place, in a far away, in a different time from us? What do we have in common with them? Well, we agree with each other because we both agree with the disciples and the apostles. And why do we agree with the apostles? Because they agree with the Son and the son agrees with the father. So really, I guess, what does that look like for us? How does that help us today? Like, what, what are these kind of practical applications? Um, well, I think the first thing that we, have to, um, that we have to do is we have to agree with the disciples as the disciples agree with the father, or the son, and as the son agrees with the father. We have to make that our first intention. We have to make that our first thought that we are going to be added to that building in the same way that all of those who have gone on before us have been added um, to that building. And I think the next thing, after we decide that conceptually with our minds, we have to actually go out and start doing the same things that they did. We have to go out and we have to start acting like Tabitha. We have to go out and start acting like Priscilla and Aquila. We have to go out and start acting like people like Apollos and people like Philip and Stephen and Peter and Paul. We have to go out and start acting like them. And... um, 
why do we have to act like him? Why do we have to act like these people? Well, you know, Paul said, you know, imitate, said to Timothy, imitate me as I'm imitating the Father. Well, so the reason why we're imitating them is because we're imitating Jesus as Jesus was imitating the Father. And I think, you know, we're seeing more and more that this is a structure that we're building. And how did they imitate him? Well, they imitated them by going about doing good, healing all who are oppressed of the devil, teaching, admonishing, sharing, loving, and being unified as a church. And really, I think that's what makes a true church, a righteous church, stand apart from the churches kind of all around this world. Because you, 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 know, you can drive anywhere you want, you'll see the word church outside of these buildings. So you have to ask yourselves, what's the difference between us in this building here and them in those several buildings? Like, why aren't they here? Why aren't we there? Well, are they built on the same foundation as we are? Are they filled with the same unity as, as we are? Are they filled with the same love as we are? And then you also probably should be asking yourselves, am I built on this foundation that I need to be built on? Am I filled with unity as I'm supposed to be filled with unity? Am I looking out for my brothers and seeing how can I be more closely enjoined with them? How can I help them? How can I serve them? How can I, you know, be for them what I need to be? And I think the highest level of that is how do I love my brothers? How do I love the fellow members of, of the church? How do I show them preference over myself? How do I put them put their needs, their want, their hopes, their fears first. And I think when we as a church start doing that, each individually, what ends up happening is a net result is a church that is undoubtedly and unquestionably built on the foundation. I think anybody that walks through those doors should see the brethren in this room and know something special is here. They should know that this is a room filled with love, filled with holy, filled with the Holy Spirit, and filled with goodness. Um, they should it just it just be obvious to them because what does Jesus say? It's these things that are going to make you known to the world out there. <clears throat> um, the reason why I had um, had um, um, Josh read Colossians, um, Colossians in verse one or chapter 1, rather, and in verse um, 24, there's, there's this concept that I, don't, that I just can't quite wrap my mind around, and I think about it often. Verse 24, it reads, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And that's a strange thing to think about, isn't it? that the affliction, the suffering death of Christ lacked something. It wasn't enough. So what is Paul's role according to this verse? He is filling up what was lacking in Christ's death. That is for his body, that is the church. So I guess really that's my last point. Why should we as a church think that we're any different from Christ, the one who on whose we're building his foundation? Um, I just spoke just seconds ago about somebody walking into this room 
and seeing love and unity and holiness and purity among the brethren here. Um, that seeing that for the worldly person is disgusting. They hate that. Like it is sickening to them to think that people in this room can love and serve and honor and honor and cherish one another. Um, and I think that's really the final way in which you, us as a church are being built on the foundation of Christ. Um, we have to suffer as Christ suffered. We have to be as Christ was. We have to do good as Christ did good. And really, in the same way that the world saw Jesus, the world should see us. When the people who wanted life, who wanted light, who wanted truth saw Jesus, they received it. We received it in this room. And we become conformed to the life, to the light, and to, to the truth. Um, but that same darkness that's out there, when they see our love, our life, our truth, and our unity, that should cause them to want to, to, to make us suffer. And I guess that's my admonition to you today. Are you filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body? Are you suffering for the church? Is the church suffering? <laughs> then you should be suffering for the church. Um, are you filled with the love that you need to have? Are you filled with the unity that you need to have? Are you filled with the good works that you need to have for your church and for your brethren? And I guess the last question is perhaps uh, the biggest one. Have you been built on the same foundation as the entire church has? This foundation of water, um, the water which saves your soul, not because you know there's something special about this water, but rather because there's this promise that Jesus said that if you are baptized, you will be saved. Um, so with that admonition, we uh, can now stand and have a word of song.